If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of sighs guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Takeoff 15, discount not applicable to partner-operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amex slash you know. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without. Trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. The Bowery Boys, episode 155 Sesame Street, Seinfeld, and the Modern Age of New York TV. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom is not here for our third part of the Bowery Boys New York City in the Television Industry, our summer TV miniseries. To give you a little recap of what we've been talking about so far, in the first part, we shared some tales of television's invention, from the experimental stations at the Hotel Roosevelt in 1927 to the grandstanding announcement of a new television age by David Sarnoff at the World's Fair in 1939. In the second part, which we did last month, Tom and I walked you past a few significant locations in midtown Manhattan that were made famous during the golden age of television from the late 1940s to the early 1960s. Those great studios of The Ed Sullivan Show, The Honeymooners, and The Today Show. So today I'll present to you the highlights of television production in New York from the late 1960s all the way up to today. A few things to keep in mind about New York at this time. We're starting here in an era where New York is having some financial woes, is one way to put it. And that would sort of lay over everything that I'm about to talk about. By this point, most Americans have TVs in their homes, and an increasing number will have color televisions. The three big networks are firmly entrenched by this time, CBS, NBC, and ABC. And finally, just to give you a little insight into people's tastes by this time, the top shows at the time were Laugh-In, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, and The Andy Griffith Show. So let me begin this survey of New York's modern television era with perhaps the greatest television program to ever be produced here, probably in the last 50 years. The show that was originally called 123 Avenue B, or you may be more familiar with it as... One, two, three, Avenue B. That does sound like a show. I mean, a show I would watch if I was wanting to learn my numbers and my letters. 
But in the planning stages in 1969, the producers thought that that title, it was a little bit too local, and they wanted a program that would eventually be broadcast all over the world. It's good that they changed the name because there's actually a building at 123 Avenue B. That would be St. Bridget's Church, which in the late 1960s serviced the East Village Bohemian community, which would have been really confusing for children. So thankfully, they switched over to that name, Sesame Street, which made its premiere on November 10th, 1969. It was a show literally years in the making. There had been a lot of cynicism built up around television about how television was slowly becoming a negative influence, particularly to younger viewers. As you might recall from our last show, television was still almost exclusively advertising-driven, and children's programming on the major networks was no exception. Public television, or shows designed with a public interest free of advertising, that developed in the United States in the 1960s. One of the first stations was New York's Channel 13, which began broadcasting as an educational channel in 1962. Five years later, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Public Broadcasting Act, promoting and funding public television stations across the country. The time was really ripe now for a truly educational experiment, with no advertisements per se, but a show that used the vocabulary of advertisements and TV jingles to promote learning. With funding from the federal government and both the Ford and Carnegie Foundations, Sesame Street debuted in 1969, notably featuring those Jim Henson creations, Big Bird, Bert and Ernie, and Grover. It was actually set on a model of a New York street, centering on a stoop of a brownstone modeled on those in Harlem. And some of the fantastical creatures of Sesame Street here were based on New York types too, such as Oscar the Grouch, whose personality and voice were actually taken from that of a New York City cab driver. And I actually can tell you how to get to Sesame Street. In those first years, the show was located in an old archaeo movie theater turned television studio at Broadway and West 81st Street. The companion television show to Sesame Street would also be filmed here. It was called The Electric Company, a reading show that would feature a young Morgan Freeman in its cast. Eventually, in the 1980s, Sesame Street would relocate to 9th Avenue and 55th Street. It would move one more time to its present home, but I'll save that for a little later. Now, this area, by the way, where Sesame Street was in the 80s, Midtown West, basically north of Chelsea to Hell's Kitchen, and then a little bit into Upper West Side, this area would be the center of television and film production in the 1960s and 1970s. Everything from soap operas to news broadcasts. For instance, the headquarters of CBS News and Sports was located at 10th Avenue and 57th Street, and they're still there today. Soap operas like The Guiding Light and As the World Turns would also be filmed in this area. And today, of course, I mean, they still film a lot of things in this neighborhood. For instance, talk shows like The Daily Show films in the Hell's Kitchen area. And then if you go down a little further to Chelsea, you can find The Rachel Ray Show, for instance. But for the most part, by the 1970s, primetime television had fully fled to Los Angeles. It was cheaper to produce there. It was closer to the assets that Hollywood could provide. And let's face it, New York in the 1970s was perhaps the less desirable location to start up a new show. Not that the city didn't try to accommodate these TV shows that did stay. In 1966, the dashing, photogenic mayor of New York, John Lindsay, who had successfully used media to further his own ambitions, 
try to make it easier to film in New York City by giving authority to the Department of Commerce to streamline the permit process, making it easy for TV shows to film here. This did have a minor effect, and it would be later enhanced when his predecessor, Mayor A. Beam, created in 1974 the agency that would become today's Mayor's Office of Film, Theater, and Broadcasting. All of this did stop the mass exodus. There were some shows that ended up staying because of these new changes. But let's be honest, all of the greatest TV shows about New York, TV shows that say something about New York City in the 1970s, shows like The Jeffersons, Taxi, Kojak, and yes, and of course, All in the Family, well, they were all filmed in Los Angeles. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. But a certain kind of television production was flourishing, an underground world, a broadcast pocket universe that created its own stable of local stars. And this was the 1970s. Oh, yeah. The 1970s, of course, gave us the world of public access, a weird roster of characters in cheaply produced shows often in a talk show format, and often way too offensive and blue to have ever made it onto legitimate TV. Peaking in the 1980s and going well into the next decade, the channels of public access hosted such luminaries as adult magazine impresario Al Goldstein, pot-smoking talk show hostess Coco Crystal, the alternative puppet show Rapid T. Rabbit, and of course, the empress of porn, Robin Bird. Public access TV much different than public television in every way. Public access came about because of a major change in how people would digest programming through cable television, which is radio frequencies delivered via coaxial cables and not through the air to antennas. Cable TV was actually invented in the 1940s and 1950s and finally came to New York in a meaningful way in the early 1970s. I mean, it's perfect for a place like Manhattan, where regular TV signals could sometimes be hard to pick up amid the skyscrapers. Cables could be buried like other city services. But of course, politics, bureaucracy, and a little corruption, perhaps, all this added up to a slow rollout for New Yorkers in the five boroughs. It would take almost 20 years for New York to be properly linked up to the cable age. By the late 1970s, though, cable was looking like a legitimate alternative to radio wave delivery. You may remember in our prior podcasts how NBC and CBS were the dominant forces in communications in the 20th century. They seamlessly went from radio to television and almost entirely controlled the identity of what people watched. But cable, well, this was a whole other world with a completely different set of participants. Getting in very early in the game was entrepreneur Charles Dolan, whose Sterling Cable Company began wiring Manhattan with cable in the late 1960s. In 1972, that venture would be renamed Home Box Office, or HBO. That same year, they would, in a very limited audience, broadcast their very first sporting event, a New York Rangers game at Madison Square Garden. This is the Home Box Office Television Network. By 1981, New York cable subscribers could obtain, on top of, you know, Robin Bird and all those shows, well, they could also get such stations as ESPN, Nickelodeon, and the Christian Broadcasting Network. 
But the debut of another New York-based cable company that year, in, in 1981, didn't just revolutionize the world of television, but another entertainment industry in dire need of saving. That, of course, was MTV Music Television, which began its broadcast at midnight on August 1st, 1981. Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. MTV would be closely tied to the New York music scene in the 1980s, its first VJs being taken from local New York radio stations. In 1984, they would help turn a local musician named Madonna into one of their premier video stars. But that first broadcast in August of 1981 would be from a transmitting facility in Fort Lee, New Jersey. And in fact, its first audience was a small handful of very lucky New Jerseyans. Manhattan got aboard the MTV train a couple months later. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC. Hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show. Sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham... Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Now, it's been a while since I've mentioned anything from the mainstream networks. A bulk of the production was still in L.A. by the 1980s, but one gigantic show, an entirely New York-based show, would make a spectacular debut in September of 1984. Cosby Show was a family drama following the antics of the Huxtable family, Cliff, Claire, Sandra, Denise, Theo, Vanessa, and Rudy. The show was set in New York, and it was filmed here as well. It would be the number one TV show in America during the mid-1980s, and would remain popular until its finale in 1992. Part of the reason it was filmed in New York and not Los Angeles was the power of Cosby himself, who wanted to stay closer to home and disliked the culture of Hollywood. The show is even a mix of New York boroughs, actually. It's set in Brooklyn Heights, for instance, on the very fictional 10 Stigwood Avenue. But the exterior of the building that they use on the show is actually a brownstone in Manhattan at 10 Luke Place in the West Village. As for the production of the show, for the first season, it was filmed in Midwood, Brooklyn. But for the duration of the show, it moved over to Queens, to Astoria, in fact, to the Kaufman Astoria Studios, a place with a rich connection to New York's film heritage. The Astoria Studios, where Cosby made its home, was actually an early silent movie studio for famous players' films in the Lasky Corporation. And even some later film classics were made here, like a few films by the Marx Brothers. In the 1970s, the movie versions of Hair and The Wiz were also filmed here. So The Cosby Show comes along here in the mid-1980s, and soon The Kaufman Astoria becomes one of New York's busiest television stages. In fact, in 1994, I told you I was going to mention this, in 1994, Sesame Street also moves out here, and the Astoria studio remains the home of Sesame Street to this day. So if you happen to venture out later to the Museum of the Moving Image, which I highly recommend, the Kaufman Astoria Studios is right next door. I don't know if there's any tours to that facility, actually, but there is a great restaurant downstairs called the Astor Room, which I highly recommend. That may be as close as you get to Sesame Street, I think. Now, another major television moment arrives here in New York in 1990, a veritable television industry in itself with a debut of... Law and Order, the crime drama half set in the world of police investigation, the other in the courtroom, and many of its various spin-offs, well, all of them filmed extensively in New York and went one further than Cosby and actually filmed a great many exteriors in the streets of New York itself and pulled hundreds of actors from New York's deep well of stage talent. One of the Law and Order producers said, quote, I guarantee you every name in the playbill will have appeared in Law and Order. It's true. Next time you go to a Broadway show, pick up the playbill, see how many actors made guest appearances on one of the many Law & Order spinoffs. The original show lasted from 1990 until 2010, and not only reinvigorated New York's flagging television industry, but because of its popularity, it actually got audiences more interested in shows that were shot on location, and specifically shows on location here in New York. 
What I find interesting about shows like Law and Order and the many dozens of shows that would soon follow, all the crime procedurals and all the courtroom dramas, is that these shows finally appear in New York City, just as the city's crime rate starting in the mid-1990s, starts to go down. So in essence, these shows rely on the preconceived notion of New York City, its reputation of high crime from the 1970s and 1980s, to create these dramas in the 1990s and, of course, into today. If somebody wanted more information about that crime rate around 1992, they could simply tune into a very important New York institution, which came along in September of that year, with the debut of New York's 24-hour news station, New York One, which first broadcast from the National Video Center at 460 West 42nd Street in today what we call Theater Row. New York One was different than the local news channels due to its 24-hour coverage, of course, but also in the early years, also seeming very low budget. I would also feature regular programs that, if you didn't know any better, seemed to be inspired by the early public access programming, albeit, of course, more family-friendly. It's for that reason that New York One has become a kind of beloved presence at the top of the dial, not to mention, of course, its quirky roster of anchors like morning host Pat Kiernan. Two Los Angeles-based shows about New York dominated the ratings in 1990, both of them on NBC. That wacky sextet of singles from TV's Friends, and of course, Seinfeld, featuring those jaded, grumpy quartet of New Yorkers, fronted of course by Jerry Seinfeld. Seinfeld actually debuted in July of 1989, but didn't really become a cultural touchstone until the early 1990s. Now, it's not really a New York film show, but it's so embedded with real details about New York City. Its creator, Larry David, is from here. He's born in Brooklyn. That I do feel like I need to spend a few more moments here talking about a couple of the more famous locations used in the show. In almost every episode, the diner Tom's Restaurant is featured. This is where the four frequently go to vent their various weekly traumas. Although the interior is clearly a set, the restaurant is quite real at Broadway and 112th Street. Tom's has been a staple of the Columbia University area since the 1940s and is also the inspiration for that infectious little song, Tom's Diner by Suzanne Vega. But if you're looking for a Seinfeld-based meal, most likely you'll want to visit the inspiration for Seinfeld's Soup Nazi at 259 West 55th Street in Manhattan. But do not call the proprietor Al Yagana the Soup Nazi to his face, as he will definitely not serve you. Today he owns a chain of restaurants called the Original Soup Man with several locations throughout the city. Okay, but let's get back here to TV that's actually made in New York, because in 1998 comes the debut of perhaps the most influential New York TV show in recent memory, returning a bit of glamour back to a televised Big Apple, although many lament this show's possible effects in the city today. Sex in the City follows along with the romantic and sexual adventures of four New York women, maneuvering through a string of restaurants, nightclubs, and shoe stores. It ran on HBO until 2004, and is another one of these shows that deftly uses New York locations, including many trendy locales of the day. Like The Cosby Show, it also features a West Village brownstone as the home of Carrie Bradshaw at 66 Perry Street. This actually places it within a few blocks from the building used as the exterior of the Huxtable's house for The Cosby Show. 
Now, many have lobbed criticism at Sex and the City in recent years. Was the show a harbinger or a symptom of the gentrification and the rising rent prices that would occur in New York, you know, in the past 10 years? I can only say that no other show on television has ever made New York look so romantic, thriving, and livable. So it might be a coincidence, and it also might be a little bit guilty as charged. Today, thanks to the tax credits and the examples of these other shows, major television production has returned to New York in a way that, it, that the city hasn't seen since almost the 1950s. And it's spread throughout the city as well. In Queens, you not only have the Kaufman Astoria Studios, but Silver Cup Studios in Long Island City, which, is the, which was the home of Sex in the City and The Sopranos. And, believe it or not, to 30 Rock. Yes, 30 Rock is not actually filmed at 30 Rock. It was actually filmed here at Silver Cup Studios, except for their live shows. Those were actually filmed at Rockefeller Center. And most recently, we have a new kid on the block here, Steiner Studios, uh, within the converted warehouses of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. It's there that you'll find the lavish sets of Boardwalk Empire, and the slightly smaller ones for another HBO show, Girls. For New Yorkers today, you can mostly feel the surge in television production when you walk down the street. In my neighborhood here in Brooklyn, there always seems to be a television show filming on one of the streets around me at least once a week. It's gotten to this very surreal point, in fact, which I think a lot of people can relate to, where you'll just turn on the TV and watch a show and you might see your apartment in the background or the place where you work. It can be a real delight if you're a TV fan and very troublesome and annoying if you just want to get home. But even the most jaded New Yorker will stop and look at those little yellow signs to find out the reason of why the streets closed. And I promise here, if there's ever a Bowery Boys New York City history TV show one day, I promise you that we will only film in New York or maybe Toronto. It's very cheap there. And with that, I reached the end of the Bowery Boys TV miniseries. I hope you've enjoyed all three parts of this journey, almost 110 years. I think we started in 1905. Please check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll have some pictures of the many things that I've talked about today, and obviously some videos as well. Now, speaking of TV, of course, I'm also on Twitter, so you can follow Bowery Boys. And then on Sunday nights during New York history-themed TV shows, I'll usually tweet along. So that is, of course, Mad Men, which films in LA, BBC America's show Copper, which films in Toronto, and of course, Boardwalk Empire, which does, of course, film over in the Brooklyn Navy Yards. So tune in for our next show. Tom will be here, and we actually have a great show planned. We're going to dig deep into history, go back 100 years, and do a show that's actually specially tied into the upcoming New York mayoral election. I think it's even, we're even releasing it the week of the primary, so I hope you'll be prepped for that. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car or a house. It's the four wheels that get you where you're going and the four walls that welcome you home. When you combine auto and home insurance with Amica, we'll help protect it all. And the more you cover, the more you can save. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.